Yale Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Junior Faculty Development Series in the Department of Pediatrics. I am Frances Chang, an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and a pediatric hospitalist. And I'm Kathleen Corbin, an assistant professor and pediatric rheumatologist in the Department of Pediatrics. Our topic today is developing a clinical program for academic faculty, and our main objective for today's discussion is to help our listeners learn how to build a clinical program, as well as hear advice and pitfalls to be avoided when starting a clinical program. We're excited today to have Rob Elder here with us. Today, Rob is an associate professor in pediatric cardiology, director of the Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship Program, and director of the Adult Congenital Heart Program. Let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here today. Um, I am originally from Connecticut, so I moved around quite a bit in my training. Um, I was a MedPeds resident in Pittsburgh after I graduated from medical school here at UConn. And then I did my cardiology fellowship at Columbia in New York, and then I decided to do extra years of fellowship, which my family said, I can't believe you're still not a doctor <laughs> during training. So I did an extra year specializing in the care of adults with congenital heart disease at Emory. And so when I was looking for my first faculty position, I came back to uh, Yale, which was a good fit for me academically and also from a family standpoint. And so I started here um, as an assistant professor in 2013, and the main objective at that time was to focus on the care of adults with congenital heart disease, which is a little bit of a, a niche within pediatric cardiology and something that I felt passionate about and well-prepared to do. That's great. Awesome. Um, and so could you tell us about your role as director of the Adult Congenital Heart Program? Yes, yeah, so I remember um, getting advice from one of my mentors early on who said, you know, don't be in a hurry to be a director of anything. So, you know, start off and be a really good clinician and that all of those things will follow you. So I um, wasn't the director from the beginning, um, which I think is actually a fine thing when you're a junior faculty, sort of learning how the institution works and what are the needs of the program is a good place to start. Um, so I was lucky enough to come into a program that was already predating me and preexisting me. And I think that that was a, a thing that was definitely important to my success. It's not um, something that must be there, but certainly if you can take advantage of whatever the home resources are, then that's a really good thing. So when I started in 2013, the program had existed – for already almost a decade or so, maybe a little bit less than a decade, and um, had originally started with some seed funding, but really, I think, needed someone that was going to make that their their focus of what they were doing clinically. Um, and so I was able to, to partner with uh, one of my senior colleagues, Sean Fahey, who was doing this, um, to reach out to some of my colleagues on the adult side. There's a cardiologist named Dan Jacoby who had been doing some of this work and sort of utilize some of the existing resources, but think about the ways in which we could start to more formalize it into a program and make it into a more comprehensive patient experience. And so as I did this naturally over time, I became 
the co-director, and it's less about the titles, to be honest, but sort of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, but became the co-director and then ultimately, you know, became the director. But it was just something that from the beginning I was passionate about, thinking about what is the whole experience that we're offering to, to patients and what is it that we can offer for these individuals. Could you describe for us a little bit of what the patient experience is like in the program? Yeah, so... Our focus is to take care of adults who were born with heart issues, which is actually the one of the biggest parts of our business. So in, in the U.S., it's estimated there's about 2.5 million uh, individuals with congenital heart disease, and about 1.5 million of those are adults. Because as a community of pediatricians, we've done such a good job of taking care of those individuals over time that the vast majority have survived into adulthood. But you could imagine that some of these people that had complicated procedures and issues when they were younger um, have different needs than a typical person, but they still have adult needs. They want to get pregnant and have families. They may have other comorbid conditions. And so they just have have needs that weren't uh, met by the pediatric cardiologist, but they certainly weren't met by the standard adult cardiology practice. And so that's where the need came from. And so taking care of this patient population requires you to think about the various needs. So they they need a provider who understands the congenital heart disease conditions and the surgeries that they've had and the natural history and the problems. They need um, to have the testing services. Um, so for example, m- most of the time when a patient's coming in, at least for the first time, they need an echocardiogram. And it's really important that that individual have a sonographer who knows what a mustard baffle is and what to look for. I mean, because if you go to see a general adult cardiology sonographer who may be a very technically gifted person, if they have no idea what they're looking for, they're not going to be able to do it. So they need to have the expertise in one place. But to me, it was always really important that they we did it in a way that felt comfortable for them from an you know whatever that may be. So it may be an individual who's all of a sudden let's see nineteen or twenty and transitioning for the first time, and so seeing a familiar face, or it may be a person that in their twenties or thirties or forties for the first time is diagnosed with a congenital heart disease and doesn't want to be seen in the waiting room with clowns or mm-hmm. more pediatric friendly things because they say I really am an adult with heart issues, although I was born with these heart issues. So you have we have to have the flexibility to to make it a good experience for those those patients, but also to have the expertise that you need to take care of them in that location. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So you touched on this a little bit, but how did the adult clinical heart program start initially? It started because of some of the needs that we talked about, that there is this aging population. And I think for a while, a lot of the cardiologists, the pediatric cardiologists who've been doing this said, well, I'll just keep following you because I don't have anybody to send you to. And so, but their patients were getting older and they were having other comorbid conditions or they'd get pregnant. And then many of the pediatric cardiologists said, well, I have no background or training in internal medicine, or I don't really know what to do with a pregnant patient with congenital heart disease. And so I'm going to have to figure out how to partner with someone else. And so I think that around the country and world, there was this realization that there's this group of survivors for congenital heart disease 
very similar to other patient populations. For example, survivors of um, cancer when they were younger who, who may have late effects, um, other chronic medical conditions, diabetes, for example. You know, uh, there's, there's a number of other things that you can think about. But there was this growing need of patients and a need to, to support them and form a home for them. And so there was a coming together and a realization that we should provide some of the support services. And one of the things that we try to take advantage of at Yale is that we have the resources of a children's hospital within an adult hospital. And so it's a really good setup for this kind of thing because we can pull different resources in, in a geographically um, constricted space and be able to take care of these patients in, I think, the, trying to do the optimal thing for those patients. So the they, there was a seed grant that was put forth and said we should start this program. There was initially some money that came with it um, to create the clinic space, to have the personnel, to have a nurse associated with the program, to have a social worker associated with the program. And it sort of got off and started running and started picking up steam. And then unfortunately, some of that seed money went away and some of the resources went away. But the patients you know, kept coming because now there was a home for them to come to. So that's that's how it got started. And I think it was around 2004 that it was formalized. And probably prior to that, a lot of these patients were just sort of filtering through clinics and they may be being followed in a pediatric cardiology practice. But imagine, you know, being 45 years old and going to a pediatric <laughs> cardiology practice. Or alternatively, imagine going for the first time to an adult cardiologist and they say, I have no idea. I've never heard of a Fontan. Or, or even what to look for. And so there's a lot of uncomfortable moments for some of those patients and definitely a need a need for a place that could take care of them. Yeah, that must be a really, um, just a really valuable experience for patients to find that sort of comfortable place where you can sort of have people coming from both sides of, of their medical needs. I think, um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, when they find it, they say, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't realize that this existed or, you know, we could have really used this. I, I gave a, a talk recently in Greenwich and I was talking to one of the hospitalists who was telling me that he saw a patient who was a repaired tetralogy of flow and had come into the emergency room and was having a heart rhythm issue, was having ventricular tachycardia. And so he called the local pediatric cardiologist and they said, oh, we don't take care of adults. And he said, I wish I had known about this resource. So I think once people find it, they're like, aha, this makes a lot of sense, but they may not necessarily know about it. It's not necessarily intuitive for people. Absolutely. So, um, you know, our audience is junior faculty. Um, and so let's say, for example, there's somebody listening who has an idea of something, you know, something they're passionate about, something they feel like is a need in their field. Do you have advice in terms of starting out or sort of like specific building blocks that they should try to pull together if they wanted to not make another adult congenital heart program, but, you know, their own clinical program? Yeah. So I think the first place to start is with something that you're passionate about because you said that they're passionate. So that's <laughs> a really good place to start because if you're doing this because your boss has told you to do it or, you know, whatever. I don't think it's going to have the same oomph behind it as if it's something that you really want to do and are passionate about. So if you have that to begin with, I think that's a really good place, whatever it is. And I think this is applicable to many things in medicine. But, you know, you're going to spend extra time because you want to go to the conferences and reach out to people and educate people and talk to people. And you get excited when you get to take care of those. So I think that's a, a really good position to start from. I think that the second thing I would say is to really carefully evaluate the resources that exist. Like I always tell people that we are 
really lucky to work at Yale. You know, we work at Yale Pediatrics, in the Yale School of Medicine, in Yale University, and there's so many resources here, many of which that we may not be totally aware of. So I think kind of looking around, asking about your resources, and not just the people that are immediately within your section, but sort of looking a little more broadly across the department or even through the School of Medicine and kind of making those connections. I remember in the beginning just having, you know, meeting, I often do meetings over coffee, right, and having things where I'd ask people about their experience. Like I met with um, Nina Katan Lodek and talked to her about the program that she was starting, which was similar for survivors of adult of adult cancer, survivors of childhood cancer who are now adults. I forget what they call the program, but um, you know, thinking about how she had worked on that and the registry that she had started. So, although it was we were talking about, I was talking about cardiology and passionate about cardiology, and she was talking about cancer. There's a lot of similarities and overlap. So, I think you know, reaching out and sort of seeing what's done and thinking about the resources that exist. So, for for my example, you know, clearly there was already a program well underway before I got here, and so I just took full advantage of that and tried to tried to accelerate it and and think about it from the next level. So, I think the, so. Number one is passion. Number two is thinking about your resources and you know where you can draw from, and then number three is really thinking very closely, and this has always been really critical to me, about how the program works from a patient perspective and making it something that's valuable for the patients. Um, and sometimes that, take, that takes creativity. So I'll give, you a, I'll give you a couple examples. So when we have patients that come to our clinic, because we're trying to attract patients, I'm trying to attract patients from all over, we, I really want it to be a really seamless program. So from the moment the patient calls up for a visit, you know, this, we already talked about this is a group that doesn't necessarily fit in a perfect, neat order. And they may say, you know, I was born with a heart issue, but now I'm an adult. And so one of the things is, well, who do they call to make an appointment? Do they call the pediatric call center? And so they're the 50-year-old who calls and says, this pediatric call center, you know, and said, Wait, but I'm 50. I want an appointment with the adult congenital heart program. So it was really important to me that they could talk to someone in our office and say, well, this is the adult congenital heart program. We'll make an appointment for you. So something simple like that to make them feel at home. And then when they come to the visit, thinking about trying to cohort as much as possible. So we, you know, because we may have people coming from northern Connecticut or Massachusetts or New York or New Jersey or Rhode Island, and so they don't want to make multiple trips. So we, we may say, we're going to do not only your visit with a cardiologist, but we're going to do your interrogation of your pacemaker. We're going to do your echocardiogram. We can get your EKG, of course. We can do your labs. We're going to do it all in one visit to make it as seamless as possible, to make it one trip for you so that they say, okay, although it's taking me an hour plus to get to New Haven, I'm going to get all these things done and sort of make it a worthwhile experience. And down to the level of the nitty-gritty detail, like one of the things that always irked me was our patients would drive an hour to get here. They'd spend the day, and then they'd get a parking. Um, they get charged for parking because this is New Haven, and we all have to pay for parking. But I noticed that there were programs around, like, for example, the adult electrophysiologist who paid for their patients' parking. I said, well, how do they do that? And so I started to investigate. It turned out that they, they had separate money for that. 
And so one of the things that I, I worked on was getting um, a patient advocacy group who wanted to support these patients, who was willing to give us some money to work with, and I directed a lot of that money to pay for patient parking, which sounds silly, but actually makes such a huge difference when you say, okay, you've made the effort to come all the way here, we're going to do this, and at the end of the day, here's, you know, we're going to pay for your parking. You know, these patients are still getting medical bills, and they're still getting insurance bills and all the other things. But like to have that little nicety, I feel like makes a huge difference. So I think really sort of thinking about it from the patient experience is a really critical thing. And then and then from there, the the word of mouth starts to spread a little bit. And they say, oh, you should go see. I've had patients refer other patients. You know, even though it's a record, they oh, you have congestion. Have you seen my cardiologist? You should go to New Haven and check that out. And that that is a really powerful thing, that yeah. word of mouth and that patient experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. very cool. And then along those lines, um, in terms of sort of publicity, marketing type of things, um, what are um, sort of resources or avenues to kind of spread the word? Yeah, I don't know if I have totally figured that out yet. Um, I think it's a really good question. So I have tried to be as open as possible to any and all referrals. So that's number one, right? Like, So if you want to self-refer, no problem. We'll see you. If you want to refer a friend, no problem. We'll see you. If you're a doctor, we try to make it as seamless as possible to refer. But it is still hard to get the word out. So... I, I made a point in the beginning of trying, and now that I we started a program to train uh, advanced fellows with adults with disease, I always pass this on too, but to call people back, right? So especially a new referring provider, let's say I see their patients, an interesting case, I'll often call them and just say, hey, this is really interesting, and Mr. Smith needs a pacemaker and X, Y, and Z, and thanks for the referral. And, and although I never give patients my cell phone number. I often give the referring doctors my cell phone number, and sometimes they'll text me and say, "Hey, you know, we have this thing." So, so trying to establish those connections with those referring providers, especially from the folks that are not immediately within the Yale New Haven system, I think is a really um, is a really critical thing. I have tried to. Um, give talks. Like I, I go, if I get invited or can get invited to give a talk, I'm happy to do that. And it may be a small group. Like I've had talks where I give a couple of cardio and then maybe five or 10 cardiologists, but that's still a very valuable experience, I think, to get to know other people just regionally in the state. Um, and that has been a good opportunity to, to interface with them. And usually at the end, someone will come up and say, oh, that's really interesting. And I had this patient recently. I'd like to refer them to you. And then all of a sudden, you know, I call it the foot in the door policy. Like you, you have your name. You go there a little bit. They get to know you. And they're like, oh, this is the person to go to. And so when I have a patient, I just pick up the phone and I call, call to them. Um, so I've tried to do those things. That's sort of in a referral basis. Um, I started a Twitter account. I don't oh, wow. know if this makes a difference or not, but a lot <laughs> of my media. <laughs> social media, right? A lot of my patients are are younger, like their twenties and thirties and forties, and I feel like they're probably more plugged in. And so it's not really a social media account for me personally, but it's more to talk about uh, cardiovascular, you know, congenital heart things, and to make sure that they have a link on there to our website and can kind of find a way in. We started an email account so someone could email a referral. It's achd at yale.edu so that um, 
you could just shoot, you know, maybe you don't like to call on the phone. I know people that don't like to call on the phones, but you could shoot an email and say, hey, I need a referral. So trying to make all these different possible avenues for people to get into the program and try to limit those barriers as much as possible. Because I think that we're not always good in academic institutions, and there's often these false barriers that get put up. And so whatever we can do, you know, to, to make those more seamless is, is important. And I've tried to say that to my office too, right? Our, our default should be, yes, we'd be happy to see you. And even if I'm not the right provider, like let's occasionally I'll get a patient, let's say that they're referred by someone to me and it turns out that I'm not the best cardiologist for them because their problem is in congenital and something else. Well, I can see them and I can try and say, oh, you, could, you should go see my friend over here and refer them. And that's, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What is your Twitter account handle for? Uh, Rob Elder MD. Rob Elder. Or at Rob Elder MD. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just for our listeners. How are ways that you evaluate the success of your program and um, including outcomes, but also, I don't know, are there other ways that you measure that it's a successful program? Yeah. um, I think number one is just the trying to get feedback from people. So sometimes that's informal feedback. You know, someone will send me an email or post something and say, this was a really great experience. And I always try to to share that with the team because I think that this is a really important team approach. And so it's not just about me as a physician, but it's about the medical assistant that they talk to on the phone. It's about the sonographer. And so when I get those, I try for the most part to send it to the group and say, here is, you know, we should be proud of this experience that this patient was really satisfied with this experience um, and and share that um, with the group widely. Um, great. Um, and then you've shared a lot of great pieces of advice already, but um, do you have um, any advice for the junior faculty starting who are interested in starting a clinical program? Uh, I think I would go back to what we said at the beginning, which is that if you're passionate about it, that is that is some of the the best uh, ingredients to make it successful because it's something that you're willing to work hard on, on and answer questions and um, try to be a, a, a good resource and sort of think about how do you move that forward. Um, and then, you know, I think... Not being afraid to advocate for yourself. So I will talk to anybody or sort of talk their ear off when I have the opportunity about this program and try to think about um, some of the resources that we need. And sometimes it takes a lot of time. And so sometimes you have to um, not lose faith or confidence and you have to sort of realize that if you keep working at it, I think it will come eventually. But there's definitely times along the way that, you know, I felt like, okay, I told this already to someone and you could very easily lose heart and say, well, okay, you know, how many times do I have to go over this? I just need someone to help me. I really need the assistance of a a nurse coordinator. I really need the assistance of a social worker at this point and sort of people are, people are not coming through for me, but you have to just keep going and advocating and figuring out who are your, you know, it may be your section chief, it may be your department chair, it may be someone in the hospital, it may be someone who's doing something similar, you know, it may be reaching out to a patient advocacy organization that you can and say, these are the things I need, how can you help me get to those places? That's 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, you already mentioned a number of these, but do you have suggestions or examples of additional resources or places to look for resources, um, either um, people or funding um, for people trying to build a program? Yeah, um, that's tricky a little bit. And so you always have to keep your, your head up and looking. Um, I think that there are some national organizations that are particular to whatever specialty you're doing and sort of plugging into them. So, for example, there is an organization called the Adult Congenital Heart Association. And when I, I put on a little event because I wanted to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the program, and so I invited them to come and display about their program, and they brought in a local ambassador, and it was a nice way to make those connections. I think another thing that I have found particularly powerful and I had zero training or experience in was philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you have a patient advocate and they say something like, oh, you know, let me know if I can ever be of help to you or let me know, you know, that's a good opportunity to follow up. And I think probably most of the time we're not very good at this medicine. At least I'm not very good at this. You know, I'm sort of focused on the medicine. But, you know, I've had a couple of grateful patients who have really helped and made financial contributions, which have helped from a research standpoint, get some of the clinical needs um, met that we needed to have done. And so those are really powerful. You know, like the, the patient parking that I talked about earlier, like that was all through philanthropy. Um, so being able to, to think about like what are the things that would really help us, help the patient, help the experience and sort of put, put them on the map I think is, um, is important. And there are ways, there are people in the hospital that can help you with this. But if you can identify some of those people and start to make connections, then that's, the, that's a really powerful way to start. Are there specific people in the department, aside from kind of the obvious, your section chief, for example, or somebody with a similar interest, who you would recommend reaching out to um, if you're sort of thinking about program building? I think it's probably more specific to the individual program and trying to find similarities. Like, for example, you know, the similarities between our program for adults with congenital heart disease and childhood survivors of cancer. I think there's a lot of parallels. In fact, I watched um, Nina Catanlotta give her grand rounds, and I was thinking, oh, there's a lot of things that they're doing. So I think um, finding someone who has a similar type of program and sort of seeing how they've been successful. I'll give you another example. So there's a cardiologist who has done a lot of this work on the adult side with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and watching him go through the program. And I always feel like his program is about five years more mature than our program. But I've talked to him a number of times along the way and said, he says, you know, okay, you're doing all the right things. You're asking for the resources or have you considered this? Or are you thinking about, you know, this database or this research uh, component of the program that would sort of really help you elevate not only the clinical aspects of the program, but the research and national aspects of the program. So I think um, thinking about that early on is important. Yeah. Um, so what are some pitfalls that should be avoided when starting a clinical program? So one of the things, so there's a lot of different things that, you know, I would do differently in hindsight. One of the things I wish I had done, and I got this advice and I just never had the time to quite do it, was to put together a database early on. And I wish I had done that. So I wish I had created 
a more comprehensive database to try to track these patients going forward because Epic has its own challenges in terms of getting data in and getting data out in particular. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're starting a program and you have uh, some way, and it may be something simple, it may be just an Excel sheet where you're tracking these patients, and then you can sort of sort through them and say, okay, I want to find all of the Eisenmenger patients that I follow, or whatever it is, or I'm going to, and, and it may be for quality improvement things for your program, or it may be for research things for, for your program, but that is something that I wish I had done early on, and I started to do that for different subsets of our patient, but have not done that from a comprehens comprehensive way, and there's many times that it come up, you know, I'm trying to contribute to this national research registry about patients with systemic right ventricles. And now I have to sort of think about, okay, how am I going to find those patients? But if I had been cataloging that from the beginning, I think that that would be a really helpful thing. Um, and then I talked about this a little bit too, but, you know, just thinking about advocating for yourself in the beginning um, and advocating for the resources that you need to be successful and sort of doing that from, from the start. And sometimes you're sort of in this position where I think that you have to demonstrate the value of a program um, and then some resources get put behind it. You say, well, here's the value and here's what I have brought and here's the increased patient volume that we have. And then sometimes resources are, are put in. But if you're, at least from the beginning, if you're sort of putting those out there saying, you know, I really need a social worker to help me with this endeavor and that's the way I'm going to be most successful has been, has been critical. Another thing that I sort of learned along the way is gathering some data on your program because it's not always necessarily handed to you. So I, I remember at one point, I just went and met with the folks in the business office and I said, can you just help me look at our revenue that we're generating just from our program alone and how it's changed over time? And can you help me look at the total number of patient visits that we've had and how it's changed over time? And can you help me look at new patient visits? And it turned out that those were increasing tremendously year over year. And so I took those data directly from our business office, which is available to anybody, and I put them into a PowerPoint. And every time I went to a talk, I would say, and here is, our, is the growth of our program. And, you know, we went from 25 new visits to 50 to 200, right? That's a huge jump. And, in fact, I used those when I said I'm, I should go up for promotion. I said, well, here's the growth that we've had of the program, right? So those are really powerful numbers that so, – so trying to figure out what those numbers are. Um, and they're not always handed to you. <laughs> Sometimes you have to go after them. And, but there's usually people that are willing to help you. You just have to ask the right people and the right questions. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for sharing those. Um, you actually mentioned a couple ways of um, incorporating research into um, your clinical program. You mentioned the database and um, finding um, ways to evaluate the growth of your program. Do you want to speak to that a little bit more? Some of the research Some aspects? of the research, yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, academically, that's a very rewarding thing to do. I think that's why a lot of people are at academic medical centers. I think it has a direct impact on the patients that you're caring for and is important, especially for young faculty, as you're trying to think about how do I distinguish myself and sort of move up to the next level. Um, so... You have to think about how you're going to do that. I think that the ways that have been most successful for me personally are when I have a trainee who's interested. Because I often find that I have a project that I'm interested in and then I get pulled in a million different directions like all of us are. 
and then it doesn't get done. But if I have a trainee that's like a, whether it's a medical student or a resident or a fellow or someone that's interested and can say, okay, you know, I'm going to be your mentor. I'm going to help you think through this, but I need you to do a lot of the heavy lifting, at least in the beginning. That has been a really successful strategy. Um, and it's, it's, it's good for you in terms of mentoring. It's good experience for that, but it's also it's good for the trainee, and it's good in terms of getting the project accomplished. I think the other thing has been trying to collaborate with other people. So I think a lot of the diseases that we take care of in pediatrics are rare diseases, and so you may have 50 and you have 25 and I have 100, but if we put them all together, you have a more meaningful sample. And so I think trying to find ways to do that across the country have been helpful. So. You know, a lot of times at national meetings, someone will say, hey, if anybody wants to contribute to this consortium, we're putting together all the experiences for systemic ventricles. We say, okay, we would be happy to do that. And then you can work together. So I think trying to get involved with some of those national resources, like I don't think I was ready or in a position to take some of those things on my own, but I certainly was happy to contribute to those. And then um, if there's regional groups, that's also a really powerful way to do it. So we have a, a regional organization for congenital cardiology in New England. And so taking advantage of that, getting to know some of the cardiologists and programs and using that to your advantage has been really helpful. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Um, so before we close, is there anything else you'd like to add wisdom to impart? <laughs> I, I, think, I think that, you know, probably it relates to thinking about the I – would, I would go back to the, the passion because I think that makes a difference. And if, if you want to do that, if you're passionate about your work, then that's going to come through when you're seeing patients, when you're teaching trainees. Um, and, then, and then again, really just thinking about it objectively from the patient experience. You know, there are some – programs that have a patient advocate as part of their program. I don't think we've formally done that. Although I've certainly met with patients outside of like a clinical space and, and tried to get feedback about how things work. But I think if you if you focus on those two things, then then that's a way to really accelerate the growth of your program and make sure it's successful. Great. Well thank you so much for the wonderful discussion and for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. It's great.